Hello and welcome back. This is Robert Fleming. I'm one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. I'm sitting here with one of the other partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. You're listening to Elder Law Issues, where we try to talk about some of the issues that we see from time to time and, and that come up uh, for our clients as well. We always say at the end of every program, Elizabeth, um, please feel free to send us your questions. And uh, have we gotten a lot of questions? You know what, Robert? We have gotten a random assortment of questions, but nothing on a regular basis. Some of my favorites actually come to us by mail, which is great when somebody writes us a letter and we we get it in the snail mail. It's kind of fun. I'm sorry. What are we talking about? What is this mail of which you speak? Well, there's also something called email, Robert, that goes through the interwebs. Yes. Well, in fact, uh, today we have a listener who has emailed us some questions. And, and his questions are kind of simple. We could probably have just uh, sent him an email in response, but but I figured that um, maybe we could talk about them because if we expand a little bit on, on the, uh, the tone of the questions, on the, the words he uses, we can say some things about estate planning that might make people understand a little bit better. And Robert, we're talking about estate planning in Arizona today. I think that's one of the most important things for people who listen to our podcast to keep in mind. Oftentimes, we may make more general statements or share some opinions. And and when we do this, we're really doing that based on Arizona law. Chances are that the law in your state, if you live outside of Arizona, may have some similarities. But today, this is really Arizona-specific. As we almost always are, unless we specifically say, oh, did you know that Colorado just adopted a new law? We don't know the details about Colorado law, but we are pretty familiar with Arizona law. Well, this this person who has written to us tells us that he lives in Sedona, so we know he's an Arizonan. Uh, and, um, and, and he asks, first of all, a question that I kind of like. I, I like the fact that he asks the question. I don't think we have talked about this topic very much. He says, can I make a codicil to my will in Arizona at age 88? First of all, Robert, let's talk to everybody about what a codicil is, because that's such a legal term. All right, a codicil is an amendment to your will, effectively. The, the term is old-fashioned, uh, and, uh, and it, it um, has a lot of currency in murder mysteries and, and literature, but not so much in the actual practice of law. We don't do very many codicils. In fact, I, I can't even remember doing a codicil to a will in recent memory. Why is that, Elizabeth? Why don't we do more codicils? Well, I think that codicils can cause problems and confusion. And one of the reasons that we don't do more of them, Robert, is that we just tell people, let's let's do a new will for you. One of the challenges with a codicil to a will is first of all whether or not it's a valid codicil and there are a whole slew of requirements with codicils except sometimes people will write on top of their original will and sometimes people will say well this is this is intended to be an amendment to my will well sometimes those are not actually effective amendments other times people do codicils that might be in a letter or a freestanding document And so one of the reasons that we recommend people just create a new will is that there can be real problems with whether or not a codicil is valid. And then if it is, oftentimes there can be ambiguities or confusion with interpretation when you're reading it on top of the will. 
One of the things that I've seen several times, although I haven't done very many codicils in the last 40 years, and I'll explain why 40 years is important in a minute, but um, even though I haven't done many, I've seen some. And one of the things that I see from time to time is somebody who, uh, who has died and, and they, they have left a codicil and the family can find the codicil, but they can't find the original will. So the codicil just modifies the will, but how do we know what the will itself says? The codicil lets us know there is a will, but, uh, but where is it? People often don't keep important documents all together in one place. In one case that I know of, the codicil was in the decedent's safe or, or in their uh, desk drawer in their study or someplace the family found it. The original will had stayed with the lawyer. The lawyer had, had retired, died, and nobody could find the will. So um, we didn't know what the original will said. There wasn't a copy of it in the decedent's possession. And Robert, sometimes you will see cases actually where there are a number of codicils. And one codicil will actually revoke a previous codicil. Right. And so then all of a sudden you get, I think you get a, a lot more questions often than answers. And when we talk to people about creating a will, one of the most important things that I explain to folks is that a will is really an operative document. That's our baseline. That's the foundation for the rest of your estate plan. You know, even if you're doing a trust, you're going to need to have a pour over will. So I, I like to focus people on the will rather than doing some separate amendment because oftentimes what they want to change might be the name of the personal representative the person who is going to be administering their estate as identified in the will. Sometimes people will also say, well, I want to do a codicil because a beneficiary's name has changed. We'll also see people who want to do codicils because they may want to change the, the number of heirs or the percentage interest an heir may have in an estate. So there are a whole range of reasons why people may do codicils, but most of the time it often involves more than one change to the will. So when I first started practicing law, I am, as I occasionally like to remind listeners, my family, my co-workers, my partners, I am so old that I was practicing law in the, uh, in the, the flimsy paper and carbon paper typewriter period, even before uh, IBM and, and Bill Gates changed the world. And in those days, if you happened to have a five or six page will, it was kind of rare to have a will that, that was long, that was that long, but it had been laboriously typed out by somebody. And, uh, and there are always typographical errors that required you to throw the whole thing away and start over because you didn't want to have any overstrikes or strikeouts uh, in the original document. And so it was quite a, a process to create a will. And if all you wanted to change was the name of the executor, then it made sense to do a codicil because there was just a couple of paragraph uh, long document to produce and, um, and it wouldn't require retyping all of that long document. Now we have your old document in the word processor. We can go in and just swap out the names, reprint it, and you can sign a whole new will. That's why we haven't done codicils. I think some people, some clients assume that we're not going to charge as much for a codicil. And so by doing a new will, we're, we're upselling people. We're trying to collect more money. Truth is, it would actually cost more in legal time to do a codicil today than it would to do a will because we'd have to 
figure out where the original will is and make sure we like all of the other provisions of it and that the law hasn't changed and uh, and review it more intensely with people. Uh, bottom line is that it just doesn't make economic or practical sense to make a codicil. That said, as you pointed out, Elizabeth, people are prone to writing on their documents or scribbling a note to go with the documents. Sometimes they may not realize they have created a codicil, though that's an essential element of the codicil. It has to be an intent, an intent to change your will. And if you just write a note that says, uh, change John Doe to John Smith as executor, does that mean you're instructing that as part of your will or you're making a note to yourself? Or, you know, we have all of these questions of what was the intent? Um, and so we do still, still see codicils, even though almost no lawyers prepare them anymore. Well, Robert, I, I can tell you that um, folks listening to us today, really, I hope you all can take to heart the fact that we don't want you to be afraid of, of creating a new will because of the cost. I, I really I try and stress that to folks. And, and if cost is an issue, please let us know. We, we want to make documents for you that are valid and that are easy to use. And if, if somebody is coming into us and they want us to do a codicil because they're trying to save a few dollars, gosh, just let us know that on the front end. And, and, and we want to do what we can to make a sensible plan for you. I just, I always, um, I really hate the thought that, that people would be trying to um, do a shortcut just to save save money. And, and I don't want to have people worried about that with our law firm. We want to give people an opportunity to get their documents done correctly and, and really keep things keep things as simple as they can be because we want to remind them that when you die, somebody's going to need to administer this. And the fact of it is, is that when we work with personal representatives who are working with the states that there may be a will and then a number of documents that could be interpreted as codicils, all of a sudden the personal representative has to do more than just be appointed by the court. The personal representative may need to do a petition to court to clarify actually the terms of the documents and if something is a valid codicil. You made a switch just there, Elizabeth, that anticipates the next part of this questioner's question. He says, um, okay, if I'm going to do a codicil, we've already told him, don't do a codicil, just do a new will. Can I designate an executor? Uh, and actually, he has a typo that I love. He, he says, can I designate an executor? And my gosh, that, take, that takes your will into a whole new territory. But I understood he meant executor. Uh, can I designate the executor in my will or codicil? And the answer is yes, but... We don't call them that anymore in Arizona. You, Elizabeth, pointed out uh, the, the new term, personal representative. Why did we change the term? We, society, changed the term from executor to personal representative. I don't know, oh wise one. <laughs> Please tell us. It happened in the year I was graduating from law school, actually. <laughs> so I never, never worked in the executor era. But the reason is because in the old days we had executors, but if they were female, we called them executrixes. If there was a, a will, they were executors or executrixes. But if there wasn't, they were administrators or administratrixes. And there was even something called an administrator de bonus non uh, or an administratrix de bonus non. And uh, that just, it got too goofy, too much um, attention was being paid to the title of the person. And so the legislature, when they adopted the Uniform Probate Code, 
took all of those terms and rolled them into the more modern personal representative. So can you name a, an executor in your will? Yeah, you can. And we will understand what you're doing and the courts will interpret it. But if you want to be pretty clever and savvy and up to date, up to date being since 1974, by the way, uh, you can name a personal representative instead of an executor. And then the next question that the same questioner has is, can I, can I leave everything or anything to the personal representative? Um, yeah, if you want to. There's no rule that you have to have someone who is disinterested be the personal representative. If you had one child and you were going to leave everything to that child, it would be sort of crazy to also name somebody else to administer it. Uh, so we would probably say, unless there's some reason that your child can't manage uh, handling the estate, name them as the personal representative. And Robert, when I read that part of the question, actually the first thing that came to mind for me is sometimes we will meet with clients who say, I just don't know what to do with this property. I want my personal representative to decide what to do with the property, not necessarily to keep the property for herself or for himself. So I also, I may have read too much into this question, but I want people to keep in mind that if you get to a juncture where you're thinking about the property in your estate, you say, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with all of my handbags and silverware, and can I just give them to my personal representative and tell the personal representative, do what you want? Well, actually, the more effective way to, to deal with that is to just let that fall into the residue of your estate so that the personal representative can administer your estate and have kind of a bundle of goods at the end of the administration that the personal representative can use his or her discretion to distribute or to sell or dispose of in another fashion. That's actually, I think, a much more effective way than to make a gift of unwanted property to the personal representative. And, and the last question sort of plays off of that, Elizabeth. It is, can I give instructions to my personal representative? or executor about what they're supposed to do? Of course, the answer is yes. In fact, that's what the will is, is instructions to your personal representative. But as seasoned lawyers, we immediately move to, wait a minute, what kind of instructions do you mean? Are you going to, this questioner tells us that he has six kids. Are you going to say, I leave everything to John, my oldest son, and I instruct him to share it with his siblings? No, don't write that will that way. Instead, leave everything to the siblings, to the six children, and make John the personal representative. You don't, you don't want to leave it to John and then say, here's what you're supposed to do with it. Uh, if you want him to do something in particular with it, that's part of the will, not part of the instructions. But if what you want to do is say, John, don't sell the house unless you get at least $650,000 because I'm sure it's worth that. And you don't want to make that a condition of the will. Yeah, you could write him a note outside the will and, and say, here's what I think the house is worth. So anybody who is listening right now, if we were actually on video, you would see I've had a crazy twitch going on listening to Robert the past 90 seconds. Here's the thing. For anybody who wants to write instructions, this is great, but call it a letter of intent or wishes or something, you know, have it in your own words. Please don't try and have this be an attachment to your will. Please understand that it can be really confusing for a personal representative. 
when we've got some other document that's trying to tell that person what they're supposed to do and the way they're supposed to do it. And sometimes that can actually conflict with the terms of the will. So what I tell people is I say, listen, let's let's iron out your will. Let's figure out what we want to put in there. Before you sign it, why don't you go ahead and write a letter of intent, letter of some sort that would be in your own words that describes things like your grandmother's china and why it's important that that be distributed to a family member rather than donated to some charity or explain that at the end of the day one of the reasons that you've appointed a certain sibling to distribute the estate as the personal representative and not another is for the following reasons don't don't try and put all of that into the operative document like a will and then what i tell my clients is if it's okay, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see it and make sure that it doesn't conflict or add confusion or ambiguity to anything in the will. And or so, become a codicil, God forbid. Or become a codicil. So oftentimes we, we try and, and work in tandem with clients who want to do some kind of a letter of instruction or letter of intent. So we've gone a little longer than our usual today because these questions uh, have given us such an opportunity to riff off of the of a lot of the misconceptions that we see. Uh, but here's what I think is the bottom line for this questioner. These are all good questions. And the general answer to your questions is yes, you can do all of the things that you spelled out in your in your brief email. But this is exactly why people go see lawyers is to make sure that they do the right thing the way that they intended it to happen and not create some unintended consequence by uh, by simply using common language that you might use with your family that might have some legal implications that you didn't intend. Um, talk to a lawyer. It's always good advice. And, um, and I think that's a good place for us to quit today, Elizabeth. So Elizabeth Freeman, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, has been chatting with me. I'm Robert Fleming. We are partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And uh, you've been listening to Elder Law Issues. We, we'd love to have you send us your questions and, um, and join us again for our next episode. Thanks. <music>